Well, welcome back to Pillar of Truth, and today we're going to finish our look at the unfaithful steward in Luke chapter 16. And Travis, in this parable, we see that the owner's reaction to essentially the scoundrel is that he praises him for being shrewd and doing stuff that we might consider to be almost dishonest. It's a shocking reaction that we have initially when we see the owner's reaction. Why, why is that? Yeah, he's not just almost dishonest. He is flatly dishonest. This guy, is, you use the right word, he is a scoundrel. According to the story, this owner reacts with commendation of the man's shrewdness, his cleverness. This is a crafty scheme, and you got to admire the intelligence that goes into it, and we all do. But he's not commending the man's dishonesty. He's not commending the man's wasting and squandering of his resources, the thing that got him fired in the first place. He's commending his shrewdness and his cleverness. And there's something that we can take away from that as Christians, that this unjust steward, this scoundrel, he put in time and effort and ingenuity to plan for a future for himself, a hope for a future for himself within this temporal life. How much more so for us as Christians when we know the end of the story. We know that God's kingdom, when we invest in it, it's a payoff that's an eternal payoff. When we invest in saving souls, we're going to see those souls as citizens of the kingdom, eternal comrades in the eternal kingdom. So when we invest and we delay our gratification, we wait for the payoff in the age to come, that is an investment for the kingdom that God will reward. How much more should we, like him, Make every effort and be diligent and be clever even in how we think about our investment in this life. So in our use of earthly possessions, are we heavenly minded? Are we thinking of eternal realities? Let's keep that in mind as we listen today. Turn your Bibles to Luke 16 and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 8. Let's read the whole thing now. He also said, Jesus also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. He called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. He said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The steward's mind is reeling. You can imagine as he asks that first question, when he says, what is this that I hear about you? His heart is in his throat. The room is kind of spinning in the moment. Just lost his job. It's a very real potential for him that His troubles have really only just now started. And once word gets out about the reason for his firing, man, he is through as a steward. He's through in this whole accounting gig. He can hang it up. If he wants the same kind of work, if he wants to be entrusted again with fiscal responsibility for any other landed gentleman, 
He's going to be forced to move far, far away, away from this community where no one knows his name, and then he's got to start over from scratch. That is not an attractive proposition. So at this point, the manager is facing a crisis. This is an existential emergency. This has to do with his future survival. It has to do with his livelihood. And you see, he takes the long, slow walk back to his own office. He's got to do some fast thinking, which brings us to point number two, a prudential strategy. By prudential, I mean an intelligent strategy, a shrewd strategy. Look at verse three. And we're picturing the dismissed manager here. He's left the owner's office. He's leaving town, heading back to the estate. He's got to go to his own office to grab the ledgers, gather all the accounting files. And on the way, the manager, verse three, says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? Hmm, that's kind of funny. The owner made it pretty clear. He just said, you are no longer able to be manager. That is present tense verb, which points to a continuous present reality from that moment onward, can't be the manager. So from that point forward, the master no longer considers him his manager. He's taken away the management, full stop. No authority, no responsibility, no privilege, nothing. You're not the manager. All the legal authority, responsibility, privileges, gone in that moment. But this guy, in his mind, he's thinking to himself, my master is taking away the management. Not has taken away, but is taken away. He's thinking as if it's still his for the moment, as if he's got still a little bit of time, as if he's still got his job. It's not yet over in white collar business today. If you find somebody who needs to be let go from your company, you walk into their office and you seize everything right there. Pack up your pencils and any items of personal value in your desk in front of me, put them in that box, and we're going to escort you from the building. Nobody wants him to have any access to the files in the computer. Nobody wants him touching a thing. Once he knows he's fired, that's it. Here, computers were called files. So there's a gap. The owner thinks you're done, go get the files and come back. And that way you're just doing what you should do in bringing back the files. This guy's saying, uh-uh, it's not over yet. What's he doing here? He's scheming. First, he ponders some other options for a new career. And it's kind of funny how he goes through his thinking. He considers first manual labor, quickly dismisses it. I'm not strong enough to dig. He's not dismissing this option because of his pride, but rather because of reality. I mean, this guy is white collar. There's no dirt under his fingernails. He goes home clean every night. The position he just vacated, that is high level stuff. It took him many years to qualify for it. The skill, the competency to handle that level of an operation takes a lot of time. So Got to picture this guy as an older, maybe middle-aged man. He's probably well-fed too. Probably put on a few pounds. So this is an accurate self-assessment. I am not strong enough to dig. Just takes one look in the mirror. Not happening. Another option, since he likes food, is to beg for it, okay? So the term he uses, the grammar here, he's imagining a future as a mendicant beggar. Someone who's got a career in begging, panhandling in the streets. It's probably despair talking at this moment because he really doesn't consider it long, but he imagines they're begging money from all of his former business associates. See them walking by and, oh, Charlie, is that you? (laughs) Yeah, here's a denarius. They all know the reason for his dismissal. He can't bear the shame of that. So he snaps back to reality, brushes that aside. I'm ashamed to beg. Verse four, though, he pulls himself together. And he says, again, it's pictured as him having a eureka moment, a sudden burst of inspiration. 
I have decided what to do. Literally, it's, I know what I should do. I know. We don't find out what the plan is until he executes on the plan in the next three verses, takes action, moves quickly. That's the sense of urgency that's there. It goes from, I know, and then, boom, he's doing it. But what do we learn from this eureka moment? It's the why of the plan. He gives us his reason, his motivation. It goes from I know, and then the reason why, what he's after. It's in order that, I know what I should do in order that, purpose clause, in order that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He has come up with a perfect strategy. And it's not just to get room and board. He's not just looking for hospitality. His strategy is to find a new place of employment, not as a digger, not as a beggar, but as a steward again. He wants to be a manager. He wants his job back. Maybe not with this man, but he wants his job back because he wants the gravy train to continue. Pretty good gig if you can get it. He's ruined the opportunity with his old boss, but it doesn't mean he can't find new employment elsewhere with perhaps somebody else. If he could just swing this whole situation to his favor. This guy's smart. He's cunning. He's even daring since his plan involves, and here's a third point for your outline if you're building one, a deceitful generosity. In verses five to seven, we see that strategy in action. It says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, to him, take your bill and write 80. Now here is one of a number of major points, but here's one of the major points of the parable that interpreters vary on and they vary widely. They disagree on several points, but this has to be the most consequential of those points. There's a set of questions I'll pose to you to help you see why there's such a divergence of opinions on this. First, what do we see the manager doing here? What is he doing by reducing the amounts of the bills? Is he just simply foregoing his commission? Or did he cheat them to begin with and now he's just removing the cheat? Were the charges inflated from the start and now he's removed the inflation? Is that what's going on or something else? Second, maybe depending on how we answer the first question, the first set of questions, does any of this reflect on the character of the landowner? Have he and this steward been cooperating together? Or perhaps it's not the steward and the landowner, but the steward and the debtors. Maybe they are complicit in the two of them deceiving the landowner. And that's what's going on. Are the tenants in on the plan to cheat the owner of money that he's owed? Or are they ignorant? Are they completely in the dark here? Wide, varied interpretations, some of them quite complex. I'll try to simplify all that. But there are some who see the master and the steward as conspiring together to cheat the other farmers. That is the two of them, they're in cahoots. They jacked up the rent. They added a 100% increase on the oil. This olive oil basically is fuel. I mean, it provides for cooking. That's how we are familiar with it today, but they lit lamps with it. So this is their lights at night. Very important. So they added this 100% increase on the oil and a 25% increase on the wheat. The original bill was 80 and then they added a 25% increase. So now it's 100 measures of wheat. Is that what they've done? As we have yet to see, the master's character is such that he could not be involved in this kind of a scam. He's not in cahoots with the steward to cheat the other farmers. He couldn't try to get away with something like this. He could try it, but it wouldn't work for long. Any businessman who's considering the use of his property, any businessman, once they figured out the outrageous injustice of 
charging such high rents, they'd take their business elsewhere. Besides that, if the owner were a man of disreputable character, what explains the report that was brought to him by that anonymous concerned party in verse 1? Who'd care to do that? Or the way that he deals with this prodigal manager in verse 2? And they call him in and just give him a little slap on the wrist. Perhaps the steward is acting alone. Maybe he's cheating the tenants without the master's knowledge. Well, that would mean first that he's inflated the bills on his own to an incredibly high level. And it also means secondly, that the owner is utterly oblivious to all this going on underneath his nose. He's totally ignorant. Is that true? That's what many commentators believe. But listen, that view really doesn't fit the evidence here. It doesn't line up with what Jesus has described in telling the story. And it doesn't fit the evidence of the culture either. First of all, as the legal agent of the master's estate, the steward received a salary from the master. He's being paid and he's being very well paid. That's why he's got that job. He also receives an official fee from the farmers for his role in awarding contracts and brokering and creating contracts. There's a fee for every transaction. That's legal, justifiable. It's also likely he's got a little something coming to him under the table from his master's tenants as well. Little tokens and gratuities were often and commonly practiced back then. So he's well paid. He's not charged actually with greed and fraud and embezzlement. He's charged with squandering. And then secondly, even if he wanted to cheat his master's tenants, all these contracts he creates, they're not sealed and secured in such a way that no one else can review them. One commentator cites a Mishnaic passage that says this, agents may not write contracts of share tenancies or fixed rate tenancies, except with the knowledge and agreement of both parties and the tenant must pay the fee. So in other words, the contract is legally binding only when both parties are present in front of each other. When the tenant and the agent, that is here, the agent is the steward acting on behalf of the owner. When they both are there present and they both sign and countersign the contract. And after that contract is signed in the presence, it becomes a matter of public record. Anybody can look at that contract. So if a greedy larcenous steward is trying to inflate the bills on his own in secret, especially to the tune of a 100% increase on oil, 25% increase on wheat. Listen, tenants aren't going to tolerate that for one moment. The owner has access to all this anyway. He's keeping accounts as well. He's checking in from time to time, but the tenants, they're not going to allow that. They're going to run directly to the master, complain about this jacked up rate. This brings us to thirdly, the master, the landowner. Again, Jesus is not pictured the kind of man who is disengaged. This guy isn't aloof. This isn't a small thing to him like some estate out in the country. This man is a decisive, take charge, hands-on kind of a leader. He reacts quickly. He's intelligent, conscientious as a landowner. He has access to tenant contracts at any time. There is no way that a rogue steward could on his own inflate the bills and get away with it. There are other views as well. But let's take another pass at the verses and see what's really going on here. Notice that the steward, this manager, notice what he does in verse five, he summons his master's debtors. That is, he has the authority as steward and authority delegated to him by the owner. He has the authority to summon them to himself, to call them into an unscheduled meeting. And this is an unscheduled meeting. Socially, you need to understand on the social ladder, these wealthy farmers are his superiors, but legally in this situation, he has the authority because he represents the owner. He can't take advantage of that authority over them around willy-nilly, but they are inclined to respond when he calls. When he summons, they come. Now, we know because we've read, we know because Jesus has said, we know he's fired. So technically speaking, 
We all know he no longer has this authority, but the farmers don't know that yet. By summoning them now, that is not at harvest time, not at bill paying time. He's summoning them off schedule, not when rent is due. They're going to see this summoning, this meeting as totally out of the ordinary. They know something's up. They know something regular is going on. And they're going to expect a very good explanation coming out of this inconvenience to their schedule. They're going to get one. But notice also how he summons the debtors. It says one by one. Now, why is that? He doesn't want them talking to each other. He wants to keep them in the dark as long as possible. Because once his plan gets back to the owner, it's over. He's got to do this now. He's got to do it quickly in haste. So he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? Just to clarify, he's not looking for information here. He knows exactly what this farmer owes his master. He's got the farmer's contract in his files. So when the farmer arrives, he pulls out the man's contract, hands it to him and has him read the amount owed. Summoning his master's debtor one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil hangs in the air. He said to him, good news, take out your bill, sit down quickly. Why does he got to do it quickly? He's in a hurry and write 50. He's in a hurry. In fact, he's in enough of a hurry. He's not thinking here of percentages. He's not interested in doing math. He's simplifying this and, a, and he's applying an across the board 500 denarii discount to every single one of the bills. So he calls in the next man, verse seven. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. I'm not gonna do the math now. I'm not gonna show you all my work, but it works out. This is another 500 denarii reduction of the bill. Everyone's getting the same thing. This isn't a percentage of the gross. It's 500 for every single person. Everyone's getting the same thing. So just in case they do happen to talk on the way out and they're going to, but there's no opportunity here for complaining. The net effect is a 500 denarii gift, maybe upwards of $75,000 in today's money. That gift comes from the master. It comes to each one of these tenant farmers and it's totally unexpected. And each gift comes to them, note by the hand of this wily little thieving conniving steward. You can bet he slipped in some comments in there about his role in persuading the landowner this is a good gesture, about giving him the idea, about all the work that he's going through to execute on it. This guy's a total scoundrel, isn't he? None of these farmers know that the steward is no longer the steward. None of them know that he's not the authorized agent to discount their bill. None of them know that he has schemed to ingratiate himself to them, hoping for a job from them in the future. They're completely in the dark. They got a good relationship with the landowner. And the last thing they want to do is conspire to cheat him. So all of them know the character of this landowner. So it wouldn't be hard for them mentally to make the leap to see this gift as consistent with the landowner's very generous nature. I mean, I knew he was a good guy, but <laughs> wow, this is great. What's the potential problem? What's the little wrinkle in the plan? Well, once word gets back to the landowner, which it eventually does, verse eight, we might wonder why the master didn't just expose this steward. Why he doesn't go around and reveal the deceitful nature of this generosity, that this little gift isn't a gift. Why doesn't he go and null and void all these fraudulent contracts and revert back to the original contract? Why wouldn't he simply do that? What is it that compels the master to keep his lips shut? First, because we need to understand he's not American, he's Semitic. It's a cultural issue here. He's not a Western thinker. He's Eastern in his thinking. He's from an Oriental shame honor culture. So this wealthy gentleman, he's never going to shame his partners by reneging on the gift, no matter how it came about. And furthermore, he never also in the same breath sacrifice his own honor. He would rather 
suffer the financial loss than bear the public disgrace, the shame that he has been duped and outwitted by this wily little steward. I can get my hands on him. A second, imagine the public relations sensation this guy would be instantly. I mean, all of his tenants going out and rejoicing in public over the master's unexpected generosity, this incredibly liberal gift, unexpected, not on schedule, totally takes him by surprise. They'd be elated. Yeah, this guy'd be the talk of the town. He's going to be praised by everyone. And this is going to spread outside this community, out into the region, even further for this kindness and this generosity. So in the hands of this crafty little steward, this shrewd manager, this total scoundrel, an existential emergency birthed a prudential strategy. It was worked out in a deceitful generosity. We come to a final point from the lips of the master. Number four, a justifiable eulogy. Here's the conclusion of the parable. First part of verse eight, the master commended the word praised. That's literally the word there. He praised the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's easy to see why people may be puzzled by that. But as T.W. Manson puts it, the differences between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. It's not commending his dishonesty, but his cleverness. I mean, what can he say? I mean, the dishonest manager put him in quite a spot. Quite surprisingly, it turned out in a way he could never have imagined and not for the worse for him either. The tenant farmers are rejoicing. The master's public image has skyrocketed. He's shot through the roof. The jobless steward's prospects are looking pretty bright. The master is not praising his dishonesty though, rather his shrewdness. The master can despise the unrighteousness of the plan. And at the same time, in the same mind, he can admire the cleverness of it all. And we understand this, don't we? We enjoy similar stories about hucksters and con artists. I mean, we despise the brazenness of their dishonesty. We can see the consequences, terrible consequences of their unrighteousness. But we also enjoying reading, watching the clever cons that they pull on other people. Same thing here. You can imagine the disciples listening to Jesus, others as well. They love this story. This is amazing. Word translated shrewd here is phronimos. Phronimos, which refers to a kind of worldly wisdom, is the skillful application of cunning for the sake of self-preservation. It's being cunning because he's got his own interest, his self-preservation to think of. That's what we see in the unjust steward. He's clearly unscrupulous. He deserves a very public and a very severe punishment for all this, but he did what he had to do to ensure his survival here. That part, at the very least, is commendable. And that's what Jesus thinks anyway, as he concludes the parable. Verse 8 draws our attention to the implications. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. John Calvin writes, to make donations out of what belongs to another man is an action which is very far from deserving applause. And who would patiently endure that an unprincipled villain should rob him of his property and give it away according to his fancy? Think again about the plan hatched in the mind of that unjust, unrighteous, unscrupulous steward. What was it that emboldened this man in the first place? What gave him the opportunity or the idea to attempt such a thing? Wasn't it the kindness of the master? The patience of the owner in dealing with this wasteful steward that became an occasion for him to take additional advantage. How much more, beloved, should we consider that we serve such a kind and merciful God full of goodness and grace, that we would pursue excellence 
in the stewardship of our own lives, that we would not be mediocre Christians, but that instead we would be excellent stewards of all the resources that he's given us. Good stewards of our time, good stewards of our money, good stewards of our words, good stewards of our thought life, good stewards of everything God's put in our care. I interrupted John Calvin, but he's got more to say. He goes on saying, Christ means that ungodly and worldly men are more industrious and skillful in conducting the affairs of this fading life than the children of God are anxious to obtain the heavenly and eternal life or careful to make it the subject of their study and meditation. Calvin says, by this comparison, he, that is Jesus, charges us with a highly criminal indifference in not providing for the future with at least as much earnestness as ungodly men display by attending to their own interests in this world. How disgraceful is it that the children of light whom God enlightens by his spirit and word should slumber and neglect the hope of eternal blessedness held out to them while worldly men are so eagerly bent on their own accommodations and so provident and sagacious. Sagacious meaning wise. How disgraceful indeed. May none of us be like that unrighteous steward, taking our Lord's grace for granted. May we not see his patience as a reason to not repent of our sins, viewing his mercy as a reason to take more advantage. Let us instead take hold of our stewardship. Well, what a convicting final statement. Let us take hold of our stewardship. Friends, we all have need to take a close look at our lives often to see where we need to repent in this area of stewardship. Thanks for being with us today here on Pillar of Truth.